The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, we're kicking off the new year, 2017, with a show on the Iroquois Confederacy, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy being in New York. My guest is Professor Lawrence Hauptman. He is the SUNY, which is State University of New York, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of History, uh, he uh, taught at SUNY New Paltz, uh, which is in Ulster County. I met Larry uh, a, a couple of years ago when I joined the New York State Archives Advisory Committee. Uh, he is a member of the committee representing the uh, academia, uh, and uh, we got to talking, and he, uh, I learned that he has written a number of books and articles on the Iroquois Confederacy, and he just uh, published his latest book, uh, it's called An Oneida Indian in Foreign Waters, The Life of Chief Chapman Scanandoa, 1870 to 1953. Uh, I read the book last week, and it's fascinating. Um, so today we're going to be looking at uh, just briefly the history of the Iroquois Confederacy, uh, finding out who they are, where they were, uh, what happened when the European settlers arrived, uh, and, and we're going to... Uh, one, Thing in particular I wanted to find out was the matrilineal kinship uh, and how that worked for the Iroquois. And then we're going to focus on the book. Uh, we're going to find out about uh, Chapman, uh, his genealogy, and, and how Larry went about researching Chapman's life. Uh, and then uh, Larry will offer some uh, tips for researching our Native American ancestors. Um, so that's what we've got on schedule for today. Uh, and so that's a long introduction. So, Larry, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jean. Uh, and I ask all of my guests at the beginning of the show uh, what your background is, where you were born, raised, your education, and your careers. Uh, so will you, would you please start with that? I was born in Brooklyn, the Middle Kingdom, um, back in 1945. attended uh, New York University, where I received a doctorate uh, in diplomatic history, my MA was in Native American history. Um, so that really, then in 1971, I was hired by SUNY New Paltz as an instructor uh, to teach um, the first courses in Native American studies. At that time in New York State, there was only one other history course relating to uh, Native American history taught at that time. That was at Oswego. Now, almost, um, I would say, half of the SUNY units teach Native American history. Okay. So you, you spent your entire career at New Paltz? Well, I also taught um, uh, at different places, uh, but my, the bulk of my career has been at New Paltz. I taught at, at the University of New Mexico, St. Bonaventure University, and New York University as well. Okay. And then how did you get interested in history, and, and then particularly Native American history? 
Well, my mother was a social studies teacher, so I grew up with it. She taught at Fort Hamilton High School in Brooklyn for over 30 years. But really what what happened is in the late 60s, um, I was reading a textbook uh, by Ray Allen Billington, a very prominent historian. And the and in one of the chapters was called The Indian Barrier. Um, so I went up to a professor I had, and I said, weren't there people here? It sounds like the, this, they were just part of the geography. So he said, so he said, well, I don't know too much about Native American, at that time, Indians, he said, but um, why don't you take some anthropology? <laughs> so and what happened is I ended up doing my master's thesis, which was basically on the Lake Mohan Conferences of Friends of the Indian. Uh, it was called Low the Poor Indian, and from that time on, I did all my all my papers at the at NYU relating to a Native American history. Um, when I couldn't find a person to study or to complete a dissertation uh, on Native Americans at the university, I uh, basically uh, went into diplomatic history, which served me very well because the nature of treaty making and Native American white relations is largely uh, involving treaties and treaty obligations. So that that turned out to be a a good step. Um, So I combined my diplomatic history and Native American history into a career over the last uh, 45 years or so. Okay. And you mentioned uh, the Mohawk conferences. Uh, I I used to work at Mohawk Mountain House uh, and learned about the conferences that were held. I think it was the early 1900s, maybe late 1800s. Were those conferences focused mostly on the the New York Indians or was that uh, throughout the country? Well, it was throughout the country. There were actually Native American people from New York in attendance at the later conferences, um, but uh, it largely focused on uh, Western Trans-Mississippi Native communities um, that were that had just been um, either conquered in military campaigns or um, they were affected by uh, other aspects of Western settlement. Okay, and then what was the purpose of these conferences? Well, it was uh, they were paternalistic reformers uh, who basically th- saw that there was a need to um, to transform Native people into um, into a way that they could survive into the future. Uh, they were one, they were all, they were some of the few people in the country that were involved in trying to do something at that time that was considered to improve the status and. Um, economy and life of Native people. Unfortunately, their attitudes uh, included um, looking at the reservation as uh, the wrong policy, that the reservation should be broken up and Native Americans should become uh, citizens, um, tax-paying citizens within the American system. Um, but they, as I indicated, there were many very decent people involved in those conferences, including some Native Americans themselves, especially in the latter days. And they did deal with issues that were pertinent, such as issues relating to to religion, 
Um, for example, the, the Native American church um, discussions of that. They tried to protect um, Native American timber in Minnesota, for example, from being stripped by non-Indian um, developers and the like. They, uh, they also introduced certain artistic uh, forms that Native American people developed into different, um, uh, different art. Um, including, for example, lace making. Uh, north, northern um, Wisconsin, uh, excuse me, Wisconsin Oneidas, for example, have a tradition today of lace making that was introduced in the late 19th century by missionaries in, that included uh, individuals who had participated in the Native in the Mohawk conferences. But on the whole, I mean, uh, they were wrong in their larger direction, namely the. the the uh, efforts at assimilation uh, for, in some cases, um, that was not necessarily seen by many Native people as um, as the right the right path. But as I said, um, they saw citizenship, U.S. citizenship, as the only way for Native Americans to survive in the future. Okay, I'm, I'm, I have a question about citizenship citizenship later on uh, so we can talk more about that uh, and clarify that for me. Um, so let's get into the history of the Iroquois. Uh, so uh, who made up the Confederacy and where were they located? Let's let's start there. There, there were originally five nations of the Iroquois League or the Iroquois Confederacy, and the five nations were from east to west, Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Seneca. Those were the original five nations. They stretched in an extended lodge, uh, symbolized by an extended lodge, from today's Am Amsterdam, New York, all the way to the Genesee River. Uh, they numbered approximately, uh, uh, the, the estimate is around 10,000 at contact. They added a sixth nation in the period from 1711 to 1724, the Tuscaroras, who faced annihilation in the Carolinas in a genocide that was perpetrated by the Carolinians in the early 18th century. And they were invited to join the Confederacy in the early 18th century by the other five nations. And so the five nations by 1724 were six nations. But also within the six nations, there were other groups that were allowed to spread their blanket. That was the metaphor. They were uh, given protection by the six nations to settle within their territory, including Muncie's, including uh, Nanticokes, Canoys, um, Saponis, Tulos, and others that were invited to uh, come to Iroquois and um, settle within the territory of the, five, the six nations as long as they followed the, the rules and were respectful of the other uh, the, the, that is the, the the Six Nations and their territory. Okay. Okay. When did the uh, league initially form with the five uh, tribes? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> that that is an impossible question. Although there have been estimates, guesstimates, um, it is obviously pre-contact. Um, but the question is when, and um, I, I can't guess, you know. I mean, there are people that have guessed at that, but uh, we do know that it's that they, they are recorded in the Dutch records as early as the 1620s, 
you know, has five fingers on one hand. <laughs> so huh. therefore, they're, they're, they existed long before the uh, European co- European contact. That's for sure. Okay. All right. And then, what happened uh, when European contact uh, happened? You know, what uh, t- for the uh, the uh, Iroquois Confederacy? What happened when the Europeans arrived? Well, I mean, you have to understand that um, there was um, uh, there was rivalries here within uh, what is now New York. There were rivalries, and uh, in lower in lower Canada, there were rivalries between Native American communities before the Europeans. But what happens is the Europeans bring certain things that that lead to intensification of the conflict. Um, of course, that means flintlocks and matchlocks and the like. And so part of it is more intensive conflict within the Native American world, which existed prior to the European. But also, of course, there's increased uh, dependence on certain items that were brought by the Europeans. Most, probably most importantly, sadly, the, the result was also the introduction of certain epidemic diseases like smallpox and measles, for example, that did damage in Native communities. In fact, in the Hudson Valley alone, one estimate is that perhaps in as many as 90% of Native American populations died of epidemics in the first uh, in the first uh, six decades or five, five or six decades uh, after um, after Hudson came. So, wow. And, and what about for the Iroquois Confederacy? Is there an estimate for that population? Well, it, the first epidemic that's recorded within the um, uh, within the Six Nations is among the Mohawks and Oneidas in 1634. We have a, a wonderful Dutch account of um, of a visit by a Dutch trader surgeon working for the Dutch West India Company, his name was Vanden Bogart, who describes this, uh, that uh, that the, the recent graves, if you will, of Native Americans. We don't know exactly how many, but we know that there were periodic major epidemics, uh, in especially smallpox, uh, from this time right really through the time of the revolution, you know, and uh, so the, it it definitely took its toll. But the way the Iroquois, the way these uh, five nations, later six nations, dealt with it, is they incorporated other other peoples within their territory. They they used the ter- they used the mechanism of adoption by bringing in uh, Native Americans from other communities, including Skenando's family. Chapman Skenando's family were actually Susquehannocks originally. They were native peoples of of Pennsylvania and West Virginia who were brought in after a bloody war between the Susquehannocks and the and the five and the Six Nations. Excuse me, five nations at that time, and they were incorporated and adopted. And this process of adoption wasn't just spreading the blanket, but in times included incorporating war captives into Iroquois society, supervised, interestingly enough, by the women. The women played the key role in the adoptive process, among others. And were Europeans adopted? Oh yes, absolutely. In fact, um, the most famous um, person adopted by the Iroquois is Mary Jemison, 
uh, who was uh, um, basically captured during the um, the French and Indian War, uh, Mary Jemison actually was was adopted, and she was the only woman ever to sign a uh, federal treaty. Uh, she was adopted by the Senecas, and to this day, the name Jemison is one of the major names within the within the Seneca people. On reservations in Western New York, for example. Oh, interesting. So, so these really were forced adoptions, and and then they uh, well, assimilated into. When when you talk about forced adoption, um, it wasn't only forced adoption. Uh, it was it, it it did that. In other words, they, they were supervised, yes, by the women. But when I when I say forced, um, uh, sometimes Native people fleeing from wars in the Carolinas or in Virginia, Bacon's Rebellion or whatever, uh, sought refuge. And um, it, in some cases, it was uh, better to become Iroquois than to become dead, if you will, you know. And uh, it was an, uh, the, the power of the, the, the power of the five nations uh, was a way of certain groups to be protected. And so consequently, um, you know, it wasn't only by force. You know, in fact, it's, it reminds me of uh, the Turkish system, what's called the um, Janissaries. The Janissaries were largely Christian boys taken out of um, the Balkans by the Sultan and became sort of special uh, soldiers within the uh, Ottoman ranks in the um, in the 16th and 17th century. And um, they were given privileges, and their families were given privileges in terms of adoption. Um, but that's see. So there, there are other um, other societies that have had this. Not to say that there wasn't force. There was obviously a uh, intimidation factor. Yes. Okay. Okay. So how did the uh, six or five initially, and then six nations work together? How, what? Uh... It was through basically ceremonial rituals. It was, uh, the, in fact, um, uh, two of them I just wrote about. One of them was, um, uh, well, one in particular was called the Condolence Council. The Condolence, uh, to mourn dead chiefs uh, and to raise new chiefs, the six nations, five nations, originally and six nations, came together to in this mourning ceremony, and in the process they they basically renewed their um, uh, their ties, and there are uh, a series of rituals throughout the year. From now, the midwinter, sometimes called the midwinter ceremony, uh, right down to harvest festivals, uh, the green corn ceremony, for example, that bring Native Americans together. That you should understand that the Six Nations didn't operate as a as a political military unit as a cohesive political military unit. Each nation, uh, for example, in the wars that they fought in the 17th century, not all of them fought together against their their common enemies. Some of them were neutral. And so, in other words, it operated more of a, as a ceremonial system a, uh, around ritual and um and to a large extent, you know, it came out about because even in their oral tradition, it tells you that instead of fighting each other, which was which seemed to have happened prior to the European, they said 
it would be better to come together and basically pray together and have common ceremonies together and um and and basically um uh, appreciate each other's uh, right as independent nations to go on their own if they need to go on their own see so it, it it's a mistake to think of them as a as a political military confederacy what's what's the key to the iroquois communities the iroquois confederacy the league if you will was religion and and that religion is what keeps the iroquois you know together uh, even today in 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 terms of certain communities as well. Okay. And you, you do talk a little bit about uh, religion in the book. So t- tell us more about the religion of the Iroquois Confederacy and how that tied them together. Well, I mean, um, they have um, two of their great epics. One of them is uh, relating to what's called Sky Woman, uh, which is the uh, the creation, which is um, recounted, and, and of course it it also illustrates the role of women and the role of human beings to the natural world as well. The uh, sky woman, the the chief's wife, who is uh, pregnant, goes close to the uh, to uh, she hears a noise of the celestial tree that had fallen. And she gets closer to the uh, to the hole that was created by the up, upheaval of the tree. She falls through the the, uh, the sky into the waters below. Uh, the the water animals um, call out and save her, put her on the turtle's back, uh, and then after diving several times, they. They plant her on the turtle's back, which becomes Turtle Island. She gets up and begins to dance counterclockwise on the turtle's back, planting the seeds that she had grabbed from the celestial tree, which is the origins of Iroquois horticulture and also the origins of Iroquois dance, because ritual dance is counterclockwise. And so, right, and also the fact that. She, Animals, the animals and human beings can communicate, tells us something about the relationship of man or human beings to the natural world. And plus, of course, it goes on and on, and there are several uh, several realities in the creation story. For example, in um, her daughter has two twins. One is. Uh, it's sometimes called an evil twin, and the other one is called a good twin, which is not really accurate in terms of the translation. But one makes life easy, and one makes life hard. So there's a duality in life. There is a uh, a balance that has to be kept. Life shouldn't be just too easy or too hard. It has to be. It has to have some balance, which of course explains some of the some of the thinking of Native people, you know, in terms of trying to walk, what they call, say, walk in balance, you know, there it is. And what, I, what I'm trying to say is that the, the evil twin, which is I, it's a misnomer, really, um, makes things hard, uh, creates currents in, in, the, in, in the water, in the rivers, for example, um, uh, while the, the good twin uh, is, 
actually gives us everything that is bountiful in life, you know. So what I'm trying to suggest to you is that within the religious tradition of the Haudenosaunee, and that's the name that they call themselves, the people of the extended lodge, ever-extending lodge, adding a rafter to the to the longhouse, um, the people in the longhouse, that you can understand some of the thinking of people. And just as you can understand... In the Judeo-Christian tradition, some of the thinking of uh, Western thought, for example. Okay, all right. So then now let's talk about the alliances uh, that the Iroquois had during the colonial wars up to the American Revolution, and kind of focus on that history for a little bit. Okay. Um, the, what, uh, the, the Iroquois, the, that is the... The Six Nations by the 18th century were basically masters of diplomacy. They they were uh, the masters of forest diplomacy. You know, in fact, they uh, they were very skilled. They, uh, as uh, Professor, the late Professor Anthony F. C. Wallace would call it, they played off the Europeans, the French and the English. For example, in 1701, they made a treaty with both the English and French. Uh, and obtained what they wanted out of the, that um, that arrangement, basically an armed neutrality for 50 years. Uh, so they were they were quite successful in in sort of playing off one against the other, um, while ceding Fort Oswego to the English in this time. And uh, they also ceded Fort Niagara to the French. So that basically tried to play the French and English off as best they could, until, of course, by the 1750s, the power of the Europeans and the, uh, the colonial settlers were greater than uh, than ever, and they be, they began to not be able to manipulate the diplomatic. Uh, scheme as best they had done earlier, you know. So, in so in that regard, but they were also they were also very skillful in dealing with other Native Americans as well. And that's as I mentioned, they the process of adoption of other groups. Uh, it wasn't just a formal adoption into the Confederacy, but it was also planting other communities within their territory, which brought numbers of warriors within their community, created a buffer between them and the European settlers, for example, uh, was very, very skillful. And um, this was uh, this is the way they, they basically uh, succeeded. And remember, uh, remember, there's still the idea of Iroquois, Communities, you know, we're talking about 17 or 18 communities today, still existing in New York and Ontario and Quebec and Wisconsin and Oklahoma. The fact that they have survived, although substantially reduced, shows something about their ability as diplomats, perhaps more than anything else except maybe their religious beliefs, their traditional religious beliefs. Okay, and then when we get to the um, the American Revolution, uh, we've got the the uh, colonial rebels, and then we've got the British. How did the Iroquois Confederacy play that out with the American Revolution? Well, it was a disaster for the Confederacy. It really was. Um, the Oneidas and Tuscaroras were largely 
largely allied to the American colonists. Um, the other four nations were largely allied to the British. It, it's, uh, so it, in a way, there was basically conflict within. Um, although, for example, at the Battle of Oriskany in 1777, you found Oneidas and Tuscaroos on one side and Senecas and Cugas on the other fighting and killing each other. After that battle, there was sort of an agreement not to get involved directly in the conflict, uh, fighting each other, although they were, they were involved in, as allies in other, in other uh, battles, for example, but not with each other. So, but, so what happened, of course, it weakened the Confederacy. And what happened after the revolution, New York State, with its plans for expansion, took advantage of the divisions within the Iroquois and with the growth of population and the, uh, the, the evacuation of the British forces in certain areas, uh, land, was, uh, land pressures began. And with land pressures also uh, were actually increased with the development of canals and, tra and railroads, for example. The same process that ha happened in the West with the, the building of the Transcontinental Railroad was to happen uh, in New York, basically in the first 50 years of the 19th century. Uh, the Erie Canal went right through the, the heart of Iroquois. It had a tremendous impact on the, uh, the Iroquois. So the the fact that there are there are only 1,000 non-Indian people. Uh, west of, for example, um, uh, Utica in 1790, and by 1860, Buffalo and Rochester, the ninth and tenth largest cities in the United States, tells you what's going to happen to the Iroquois after the Revolution. Wow, wow. And I, I know that uh, some of the Iroquois went to Wisconsin, but until I read uh, the book, on Chapman, I did not realize that uh, some also went to Kansas. Uh, so how did that all uh, play out? Uh, actually, yes, and of course, a lot went to Canada. In fact, a substantial number went to Canada, including some Oneidas, uh, the number around 3,000 today in Canada, at least in one of the reserves. This Another reserve has about 1,500. So the, it was a it was a diaspora, some of which was um, forced by the war, the fact that, you know, they were on the British side, some of them, you know, namely uh, allied with Joseph Brandt, the Mohawk war chief. Um, others, others felt the pressure of land and transportation that I just described, and tried to cut deals by going west to places like um, Southwold, Ontario, or the area around Green Bay, Wisconsin. But in uh, 1838, there was a, there was a formal removal treaty uh, pushed on the Iroquois by the land company known as the Ogden Land Company, and within with the support of the federal government in New York State that basically um, tried to push all New York native peoples in New York into Kansas. Um, some went, some resisted, um, some instead went to Canada. Um, but 
but there was a federal treaty called the Treaty of Buffalo Creek of January 15th, 1838, that basically, what we don't realize when we talk about the Iroquois is that they had the same pressures as the southeastern Indians that we see in our textbooks. Every American history textbook talks about the Cherokee, but they don't talk about what happened in New York. Uh, and you know, that, there's there's probably a reason for that because most of the people who write textbooks are from the Northeast, <laughs> and uh, it's easy to point a finger at uh, at the South, uh, just like it's it's easy to point a finger at the South uh, and not talk about slavery that existed in New York until 1827. You know, so there is the there is that reality, and um, but so they they did about. Several hundred went to Kansas, several hundred, um, and uh, actually stayed there. But there was there was earlier there was also a group of uh, Senecas and Cayugas that went to Kansas. Went and went to what is now Oklahoma. Kansas was part of Indian Territory. Uh, in the 1830s, there was a removal treaty from Ohio because some some of the Iroquois were living in Ohio around Sandusky, and they were there was a formal removal treaty into into uh, Kansas, which later became part of it, which was then Indian Territory. Excuse me, um, and so there was a series of so, you know what it tells you is that how history is written, the fact that we know more about what happens in the South relating to Native Americans, and not what happened in New York, and that's uh, that tells you something about the bias in history, the fact that we we ignore our, what's in our own backyard that makes us feel uncomfortable. Sure, sure, and I think that also applies to slavery. Uh, that that many people do not realize that the Northern states also. Uh, had slavery, and you know, from the very beginning. Um, not only so, that, I mean, not only that, I mean, uh, New York and Rhode Island were two of the largest transshippers of slaves in the yeah. in the colonies, and uh, you know, we we don't. I mean, it's it's far it's far worse than we realize. Sure. Sure. So we're going to continue our conversation. And uh, when we come back, we're going to find out about the matrilineal kinship uh, system and then talk about Larry's book, An Oneida Indian and Foreign Waters. Um, So we will take a break and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you're listening uh, to the Forget-Me-Not Hour on Blog Talk Radio, you will see a few buttons. Uh, You'll see a a share button for all of the social media. Please do so. Share the Forget-Me-Not Hour with your friends and family. You'll also see a follow button. If you uh, click that, you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air, what the topic is, and who the guest is. Also, on the Blog Talk page, you will see the Forget-Me-Not Hour archives. Uh, We have a wonderful shows uh, going back six years and many of them are timeless so please take advantage of finding out about genealogy tips and historical context for your ancestors you'll also uh, find the forget-me-not hour on itunes under jane e wilcox Uh, so you take the forget-me-not hour on the road with you uh, so today we are talking about the iroquois confederacy with larry helpman Um, so uh, before we talk about the matrix matrilineal kinship uh, let's let's find out first how did the Iroquois get the name Iroquois when they called themselves something else well that's a good question uh, in fact um, I was just reading an article by Gordon Day um, Iroquois, Iroquois or Iroquois was first cited in, uh, in the literature by Champlain in 1603 it is apparently uh, of Algonquian origin, although they don't know exactly where. Um, most scholars think it's uh, from the Montagnier uh, in uh, southern, what is now in southern Ontario. Uh, that we we don't really know very much more than that. Some people think it's related to a Montagnier word for snake, whatever. But I don't know. Uh, they're, they're, it's it's a mystery. But that's the best we could do, namely the the fact that it was uh, put in French in 1603 by Champlain, and that it probably has Montagnier roots. Okay. And then, as you mentioned earlier, I did not realize this until about a year ago uh, that they called themselves the and I'm see if I can pronounce this correctly, Haudenosaunee. Is that correct? That's that's pretty good. That's good. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Haudenosaunee. Okay. Um, and um, which, of course, uh, people of the Longhouse or people of the Extended Lodge or people of the Infinitely Expandable Lodge, you see, uh, notice the, the metaphor, or notice the symbol. The Longhouse, uh, uh, you, you when you add a nation, you add a rafter. See, that's how, that's, so it's symbolized that way. But also notice the Longhouse is the religion and is the hearth. It is both the symbol of the religion, the traditional religion, the longhouse, but it's also the hearth because the longhouse is owned by the women. So that leads us right into kinship, namely right. the fact, namely the fact that the women own the longhouse and they own the fields and they assign the fields and they arrange the marriages according to this is the tradition. Think tradition changes, but that's the way it. That's the way it was initially and, and the way it was described by Father Lafito back in seventeen around seventeen twelve, you know. Um yeah, uh, this was the way it was. And as I mentioned, the women, at least in terms of the epic, their the religious tradition, they originated horticulture. They originated Iroquois ceremonial dance. Um, they raise the chiefs. They remove the chiefs. It could be removed for different reasons, but the women raise the chiefs and remove the chiefs. When I say women, I mean the clan mothers who gather together and the 
uh, they're brought together by the uh, the clan mother of the deceased chief uh, to raise a new chief. Uh, this is uh, this is still done, by the way. This is still done at the Tonawanda Indian Reservation near Akron, New York. It's done at Onondaga. Uh, just south of Syracuse at Nedro, New York. It's done at Grand River at uh, the Six Nations Reserve in in Ontario, for example. This is the traditional way. Uh, Although, you know, there there are Native people now, Native uh, communities, Iroquois communities, Haudenosaunee communities that have elected systems, uh, there are still chiefs in certain communities. And... um, and they gather together at Onondaga in New York, or in Canada there is also an Iroquois confederacy that meets together at what's near Brantford, Ontario, at Oshwikin, Ontario. So, But it's the women that have held the, this community together. When I wrote a book called um, um, Seven Generations of Iroquois Leadership, uh, I had nine chapters, okay, and uh, I think... Seven of them dealt with women, but the ninth chapter dealt with 35 women. So actually, it was more balanced towards uh, more favoring the women in terms of leadership. Uh, and that is very important to understand um, in, um, in Iroquois society uh, historically, okay, and even in some communities as well today. We're the clan mothers involved in making the alliances and treaties, uh, you know, making war, what was their role with that? That's a good question. And some, and I looked at the great, if you look at the great law, they call them uh, basically matron chiefs. Uh, they're, they're consulted. They're supposed to be consulted on issues. From, let me give you an example. When Corn, Corn Planter, the Seneca a war chief, uh, threatened the United States after uh, after the loss of Seneca lands in the, uh, in the ten years after the American Revolution. The Seneca War Chief Cornplanter threatened a war against the United States. Who stopped that war from happening? The Clan Mothers. Okay. When in 1797 at a, another at a treaty uh, at uh, Big Tree, which is now Geneseo, uh, the women took over when they didn't like the way the men under Red Jacket, the Orida, Great Orida, the Seneca Orida, had behaved. And so they basically told the chiefs where to go, if you will. <laughs> and they, they're they the ones that determined what happened. See, so, I mean, there are examples of that. Although women's role declined in terms of the political reality, um, Nevertheless, in certain communities today, you know, women have um, uh, women still clan mothers still determine chiefs and leadership. So. Okay. And how did a woman become a clan mother? Was was she born into it? Well, yes. It, in in a way, it's uh, it's hereditary, really. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, she. Uh, when when you say clan, in when a clan mother, in according to the the great the great law, yeah, well they're it depends. You see, when, today they're chosen, all right. Today they're chosen, okay. But uh, it apparently was not altogether the case. But I'm, I'm I can't I don't think I can answer that too accurately, you know, because I. 
I'm not necessarily I'm, I'm basically a historian and not an anthropologist or uh, I'm not I'm, I'm not a member of the uh, Iroquois Nation one of the Iroquois Nations but I, I think if I'm not mistaken it was hereditary okay that's all okay. I can't answer that okay Okay. All right. We'll we'll do some research on that. And then, were the Iroquois the only uh, Native Americans who had the matrilineal kinship, or were there others? Oh no, no. The, uh, in fact, it was much more common than than we realize. Okay, it was much more common in the eastern woodlands, especially. Yes. Okay. All right. So let's let's talk about your book, um, An Oneida Indian in Foreign Waters, The Life of Chief Chapman Scanando, 1870 to 1953. Um, I, I found the book fascinating. Uh, tell us just briefly what, what we're going to find in the book. Well, uh, uh, what, uh, what interests me about Chapman Scanando was, was the fact that here I had heard for 40, over 40 years about an, an American Indian inventor, you know, uh, a chief who happened to be an inventor. And it was in the back of my mind because I had spoken to several of his relatives back in the uh, the 70s and early 80s about him, you know. Uh, so he fascinated me uh, because when we think of Native Americans, we don't necessarily think in terms of science and technology, you know. We, th- we have this romantic image or this uh, this narrow image that, you know, of uh, Native Americans as artists, this is a stereotype, or Native Americans as warriors. But we don't necessarily think of Native Americans in what Philip Delore calls unexpected places. And, uh, you know, the fact that, that Skenando worked for Thomas Edison in Schenectady tells me, told, sort of triggered this, triggered my interest in learning, wanting to learn more. And then what happened is about Five or six years ago, five, about five years ago, I guess it is, I came across uh, a, uh, I guess it must have been like 59 letters. I was at Cornell University doing research, and I came across 59 letters written by Chapman Skenando or people and uh, others communicating to Chapman Skenando from 1899 to 1943. And there was his story. It was, there was his story outlined about how a man who um, went to Hampton Institute, uh, an African-American school, ended up as a mechanic and ended up in the Navy and became an inventor um, and then was made a chief and was involved in Native American land claims and, all, you know, all that. Um, and uh, who... Uh, despite the fact that he had won and his people had won the case in 1920 in the uh, appellate court of appeals, federal court of appeals, he uh, was basically forced to uh, not live on his own territory, but spent the next uh, 30 years or so living among the Anandakas on the Anandaka reservation. So I began, and but I was fascinated because the letters described his adventures around the world, not just in New York, but around the world. He described indigenous people in Nicaragua. He described Hawaiians, native Hawaiians, and some of the same problems that they were facing that his own people were facing, he describes. He describes uh, the tensions that were existing in the early 20th century between Russia and um, 
and Japan over uh, over the Korean Peninsula. He describes the Arab world, for example. Uh, he describes the Suez Canal. His fascination with the Suez Canal, of course, is is motivated by his interest in technology. And uh, so I began to sort of be fascinated with these letters. I wanted to know more. Although I had collected, I had collected a lot of materials over 40 years about this man, largely through interviews. Uh, I, see, I, I combine field work in Native American communities. I do interview and field work in Native American communities with archival research in places like the National Archives and or in private collections like at Cornell that I found. Um, and so, you know, I began to look more and more, you know, and this became sort of an obsession, if you will, uh, over the over the last couple of years. Um, and then uh, I was able to get his national personal record file from, from St. Louis. Uh, he he spent fifteen years he spent uh, fifteen years in the uh, United States Navy, and in the Navy files there were also letters, uh, not just letters about naval service, but his life after naval service were in, were also included and some of his family records were included as well and so this is what and then the, the fact that I you know, went over to Schenectady and looked at the what's called the Museum of Innovation and Science in Schenectady which has the General Electric records so I went into that area just because I had never I had never thought about looking at records relating to a Native American scientist or techni- or technician such as uh, Chapman Skinner. So it was fascinating. But part of it is because I, I knew some of his relatives and I wanted to know more about him that they had sort of whetted my appetite years ago about about uh, Chapman Skinner. I also, because I have, I worked with the Wisconsin Oneidas uh, over the last 40 years and some of Chapman Skerendo's relatives ended up in Wisconsin, including his, his grandfather. And one of his relatives became one of the major figures in the 1920s uh, dealing with land claims from a Wisconsin perspective, not just from a New York perspective. So, you know, this is what fascinated me. But the idea that, you know, Native Americans are not seen as... Uh, Unfortunately, the stereotype is that they're not modern. That they're not people that uh, that are oriented to technology, and that's a, that's nonsense. I mean, the people that build our skyscrapers in New York, for example, in New York City, they're native people, including Oneidas. Not you know, significantly number of Mohawks, yes, but they're also Oneidas. And so I began to say, well, how come how come we have the image of the the high steel Mohawks, and we don't connect that with viewing Native Americans as being part of the modern world. That somehow they're they're holding on to ancient traditions and living in the past. And I said that's nonsense. That's that's really nonsense. So that's how I got to write about Chapman Skinnerdale. All right. And what were a couple of his inventions? Well, he, well, for example, he invented gun sights on a, on a um, on battleships, on gunboats, for example, improved gun sights. He inv- one of his interesting inventions was an audiophone attached to a megaphone. If you were on ship, on board ship, and you were in the mast, 
you couldn't hear anything on deck if the wind was blowing and if it was, uh, you know, uh, the, depending on the weather or whatever. So you couldn't communicate to to the leadership on the deck. So he invented what's called a megaphone with an audiophone attachment so you could communicate between the uh, the nest up, you know, on top of the ship and, and the deck. Uh, another thing he d- developed was a compound explosive that not used in war but used in industry that was patented in 19, about 1925, 1926. Uh, but he had other inventions, which, a lot of them which he didn't uh, patent. And, um, and uh, one of the things, you see, in the age of the inventor, the backyard inventor, which that's basically what he was, um, you know, that, that was the fade after World War One, uh, with the development of um, uh, Monsanto and Dow and, uh, you know, during World War One and after with their development of uh, chemical departments and specialization. So by the time he was well into his 60s, the, his, uh, the world of the backyard inventor was not not there anymore. And so, uh, but basically he... Uh, uh, his his world of invention sort of uh, dried up, and he became more of a uh, reservation elder uh, and a, a political leader within his community, along with his cousin uh, William Rockwell. But for upwards of 60 years, he was basically uh, inventing and working in uh, firms both in Schenectady and Syracuse and also, but mostly in those two cities, um, on uh, in the mechanical area and doing his um, innovation there. Okay. And then uh, you mentioned in the book that uh, he had five children, uh, and you also said that you talked with some of them in the 1970s. Did Were you in contact with them as you were writing the book now, a few decades later? No, actually, it wasn't. What I, I had the twenty-three to, to, to other Oneidas who were part of the um, part of the uh, Boylan case, that is the land claims case. I I had spoken to those people, those individuals. Uh, his children weren't around, you know, anymore by the by this time, and um, his children that is his descendants were basically Onondagas because see, he married an Onondaga lady by the name of uh, Bertha Krause, so his children were basically Onondagas were no longer on an Oneida because of matrilineal descent, you know. So I had spoken to the Oneidas, and also I had spoken to to his Oneida relatives, and also some of the uh, Oneidas who had been, you know, had left for other areas like uh, like Wisconsin. So that's where my research was. I had done that earlier research. I had jotted uh, had jotted jotted down field notes back in the the 80s about my interviews with these particular family members, uh, the Hanyos family. You know, I know the, you know, Hanyos is not an Oneida. It's an Oneida name now, but it, of course, the, the roots of the word Hanyos are from the Mohawk Valley. Many of the Oneidas have names that are, uh, you know, not necessarily of indigenous origin. For example, the name Schuyler is a very common 
name, or has been a common name among the Oneidas. Uh, Schuyler, of course, is Dutch, and uh, so there was basically the, uh, the development, the development of uh, European names, Christian names. For the name Christian is a very common name among the Oneidas. Christian, uh, Christian, Christian, right? Christian. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and so, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, sorry. Sorry. Uh, you mentioned Hanyo, so that's his mother's family name. And at Correct. the beginning of the book, you uh, said that uh, you were able to trace uh, Scanando's lineage from his mother's family back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, how did you do that research? Well, some of it is in the. Um, some of that is in the. Um, Madison Historical Society, the local history uh, society, and uh, some some of it is through the interviews I did, uh, and some of it is through naval records, you know. So basically, that's the way I did it. And of course, the, see that that's hard, as you know, as you're aware, because it's uh, the, the census has male uh, names, and that's uh, but uh, you know I was able to find like. Um, uh, listings of marriages, for example, um, of Skinnendos and the like, and uh, and uh, Hanyos names. Uh, there's also there was also a file. There's also a um, uh, a record by um, on, uh, I can't think of her name now. Uh, there, there's also a records within um, the um, Hamilton. College and Syracuse University. There's some records relating to um, field notes taken uh, by uh, a lady. I can't think of her name right now. Allen. Her name is Allen, uh, who is a, a history professor uh, who um, also documented some of the um, genealogy of the uh, the Oneidas, for example. Okay, all right. And I do want to point out to uh, those who are listening, we are going to extend the broadcast uh, probably another 20 minutes or so. This is just fascinating, and, and I'm loving having Larry here talking about uh, the, Oneidas, the Oneidas and the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, so continuing with uh, Scanado, uh, you said that his family were originally Susquehanna. So were right. you able to take his his, his paternal line back uh, to say the American Revolution or or oh, further? Definitely. Oh, oh, definitely. Yes. In fact, uh, you could you could take it back to um, the early 18th century when um, that name begins to appear. See that that name Shenandoah is Shenandoah, so that tells you right there. Okay. And uh, the Shenandoah, uh, so the native people, that, that is the Susquehannocks, that was a very common name among the Susquehannocks. And what happened is that the the Susquehannocks became incorporated into the Oneidas, and, um, and as early as the 18th century, you see that name at Atsiningo, or uh, that's one of the, uh, or it's also called Okwaga. Oquaga, and uh, which is um, near Hancock, New York, you know that, that area. So uh, you see, you see that name appear, and over time, of course, because the intermarriage between Oneidas and Onondagas, for example, you see that that becomes 
and Anandaganim, the, the last uh, Tadonaho, that is the the uh, spiritual leader of the Iroquois Confederacy, uh, the last one previous to this one, his name was Leon Shenandoah. It's the same name. And in Wisconsin, it's spelled Skenador. So it, it must be spelled at least, oh, 12 different names, 12 different ways, which also, of course, uh, is uh, is both... Is is a problem at times, but there there is it's that's that's the root of that particular family name. It's uh, Susquehanna. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, one uh, more also, question. By the way, they're also known. They're also named the Susquehanna. Are also known as the Conestoga people. That's where we get Conestoga wagon. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Yes. All right. All right. So one more question before we take a break. Uh, was there anything that particularly surprised you? about uh, Scandal when you were researching him? Well, what surprised me, I guess a couple of things surprised me, but one of the things that surprised me was that, you know, the, when his descriptions of uh, of uh, the world, actually, um, the when he sort of he started to equate what was happening to his Oneida people and the loss of land with what was happening directly in in Hawaii, for example. Or another example is in Nicaragua. He 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 describes in like 1910 a civil war going on in Nicaragua between the government and rebels in Nicaragua and the landing of the American Marines. Uh, in the middle of this uh, civil war. But he starts talking about, for example, the, the suffering that the Mosquito Indians were, uh, that were happening to the Mosquito Indians at that time were caught in the middle of this civil war. This could have been the 1980s, and he's writing about it in 1909, 1910. Uh, the Mosquito Indians during the Sandinista War were caught in the middle as well, you know, back in the 1980s. And so quite modern. The, the also what intrigued me too is um, how the the persistence of the Oneidas fighting the, the court case for 11 years, and the fact that in 1920 a federal court actually they succeeded in winning a federal court decision, which surprised me. I thought that decisions like that were only during uh, Warren Burger's court, the Supreme Court, uh, in the 1970s, for example. But there were justices earlier that sort of saw that the that the Oneidas had a, a legal right long before they thought that, that you know the courts would recognize that. So those are the two things I would think that's, that really stand out to me about um, the fact that the persistence of largely poor, uneducated, except for two, several of the Hanyos, uh, uneducated people, Oneida people, were able to win at least uh, recognition, federal recognition, and their land 32 acres back was, uh, I think, remarkable. And um, you know, intrigued me. Uh, how how were they able to do it? And one of the reasons was that there was a a white attorney by the 
you know, by uh, that uh, that came to their aid. Uh, his name was George Decker from Rochester, who had been uh, the former assistant attorney general of New York State, who had who had previously been on the other side, came to their defense, and became their defender for the next eleven years. And without his help, and without these two of the Oneidas who were some more educated, they probably wouldn't have succeeded. Okay. All right. We're going to talk a little bit more um, after the break about uh, the current status of Native American lands and uh, treaties. Uh, But first, we are going to take a break. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We will be back on the third Wednesday of the month. That is January 18th at 10 o'clock Eastern Time. My guest will be Lisa Alzo. Uh, She is the expert on Eastern European research. So we'll be talking about Eastern European research. And she's also going to be giving us some writing tips as well. Uh, So that is on January 18th at uh, 10 o'clock. And then on the uh, first Wednesday of the month, that's our New York show. Uh, That is February 1st. Uh, We're going to be talking about Sir William Johnson, 
Molly Brandt and the Mohawk Valley during the uh, Revolutionary War. Uh, my guest will be Michael Perazzini. Uh, he is the senior interpreter at Johnson Hall uh, in Johnstown, which is uh, Sir William's estate. Um, so we're going to be uh, looking also talking about so the uh, Native Americans, uh, the Iroquois who were involved uh, in the Mohawk Valley at that time, and uh, Sir William and the European settlers there. Uh, so that is also at 10 o'clock in the morning, and again, that is on February 1st. Uh, if you have questions for my upcoming guests, if you have show topic ideas, if you have uh, feedback for the show, please contact me. Uh, you can find me at janeewilcox.com. Um, so today we're continuing our uh, fascinating conversation uh, on the Iroquois Confederacy and in particular uh, Larry Hauptman's book, An Oneida Indian in Foreign Waters, uh, which is about the life of Chief Chapman Scanando. Uh, so Larry, um, uh, we've been talking about uh, some, his, you know, putting Scanando into historical context. And you mentioned in 1838 uh, the removal of, of people, uh, uh, Native Americans from the North. Um, in the book, you talk about uh, the 1838 bloodline and the Kansas money, uh, which to me seemed genealogically significant uh, because people were were trying to prove their descent from from the Iroquois. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, uh it it doesn't uh today um today native people, the Haudenosaunee people uh either are um descendants of a uh Haudenosaunee woman matrilineage or uh, in at least in Oneida, it's one quarter of Indian blood quantum related to the Indian Reorganization Act. That's the um, Oneida in Wisconsin. So uh, the bloodline, in order to in order to get money in the early in, after the disastrous treaty, the Force Treaty of 1838, they had to prove that they were on the treaty the treaty rolls. Uh, that they were on the rolls of uh, each of the nations, um, uh, each of the, and when I say that they had to be on the rolls, um, you, you have to understand there were also annuity lists. The state archives has annuity lists to um, to show uh, who was getting what at different agreements, for example, or after different. Uh, uh, treaties, for example. So therefore, what I'm trying to say is that in order to prove that you were eligible, you had to prove you were either on one of those annuity lists or you had to, um, you know, show other evidence that you were a descendant of a uh, of a tribal member at that particular time. So um, in 1905, there was a payout called Kansas Money, it was approximately. It came out to be about a little between 107, about 170 dollars per person for those that could trace their bloodline back to the 1830, 1838 treaty. Uh, it was a payment because what happened is that once many of these Native people, the Haudenosaunee, went out to Kansas, they suffered. Uh, different fates, uh, partly because they weren't supplied with the proper um, 
supplies, uh, food, whatever. Uh, many, actually, a significant number died of cholera and uh, uh, actually starvation. Uh, others who who were there by the 1850s faced bleeding Kansas. Uh, white settlers fighting each other over slavery, but in reality, seizing Indian lands at will. And so the federal government didn't protect the land rights of the Indians that were that actually went out there. And so the Six Nations filed claims. It took uh, oh, it took uh, notice. It took approximately. Um, 50 years to settle these claims. They tried to get Congress to pay out money, and then they went to the U.S. Court of Claims, and finally they were able to, to succeed in getting $170 per person uh, allocation. At least the Oneidas got that. Uh, others might have gotten a little more, a little less. But that's uh, that's what the, what Kansas money is. It's uh, one of the problems was that the money started coming into the communities in 1905, and a lot of them, a lot of um, the money went out um, because it was per capita wasn't invested within the community, and it was quickly dissipated and didn't produce permanent results in terms of improvement of Indian life on reservations. Okay. So that was and also that's also part of it. Okay, and then when you talk about the 1838 uh, treaties and those who signed them, are these people who, are, uh, who signed the treaties, are, are they specifically going to Kansas? So are, are these only the people who are going to Kansas, or are there others who have signed these treaties? Um, no, it wasn't just the, – see, the, the question is who signed the treaties. That's it. See, that's the question because um, – According to um, research that has been done, um, not a majority of see the the Iroquois required consensus up to 1797 to sign treaties. Okay, the consensus that is a sort of a uniform signature. By the 1830s, individuals signed treaties, chiefs signed treaties, warriors signed treaties, you know, headmen signed treaty, whatever. Um, but um, the, the, what I'm trying to say is it was with a nation, but there were those that signed the treaty who actually challenged the treaty because they said if we didn't sign the treaty, we can't challenge the treaty. Um, it sounds crazy today, but that's the way it was. In other words, to have a right to challenge the treaty, they had to show that they were either coerced or that uh, there were... Uh, circumstances of the treaty that were not told to them or were kept from them, whatever. So in 1838, the, yes, uh, some, uh, some of the chiefs did sign the treaties, right? Some of the, some of the chiefs signed the treaties with the understanding, as a, a young chief by the name of Maris Pierce, with the understanding that he couldn't challenge the other chiefs forcing him to sign the treaty. In other words, he had to sign the treaty in order to challenge the treaty. That sounds crazy today, but that's the way certain certain things happened in 1838. And um, and so what happened is that um, is that in 1842, they redid the treaty again. And in, 
See, you have to understand, in 1838, four of the Seneca reservations were taken in the 1838 treaty. Four of the Seneca reservations were taken. But in order to get back... But in 1842, the Senecas were able, with the help of the Quakers, to get two of the reservations back. And so, see, they're different. What may be confusing is that there were several treaties that are known as the Treaty of Buffalo Creek, okay? And the the the, the treaty in 1838 was a treaty that a treaty of removal, and the federal government came in and said you had to do this, so they signed it under coercion. So they challenged it because it was done under coercion, right? So in 1842, the Senecas, for example, redid the treaty, um, claiming that not all of the chiefs actually signed the treaty or the, and that it was done by coercion. So so not all of the Senecas or not all, and the, not all of the Senecas actually um you know actually um um, well, what I'm, I'm getting confused now, but what what happened is not not all of the Senecas who signed the treaty went to Kansas. Only very few of the Senecas actually went to Kansas. The same thing with Oneidas. Some of the Oneidas didn't go to Wisconsin in 1838. Some of them reta- re- remained in New York. Some of them went to Canada. Okay, So what I'm basically saying is that there was a level of coercion, and so there were always challenges to this treaty. And finally, finally, the Supreme Court gave them the right to have financial compensation for it. Not the, not the land back, but financial compensation to individuals that could prove lineage back to the 1838. See, so that... Sorry, I'm okay. somewhat confusing. It's confusing. Oh, right. it, it is. It is. And and so let, let's jump forward to today. And just just very briefly, where do the Iroquois stand with uh, regarding the land and treaties at this point? Are there still cases in in state or federal courts, or ha, has this been settled, or is this in, still a kind of a, a process? Well, in, in 2006, the Supreme Court. Uh, basically, 2005, 2006, um, they shut down land claims um, cases, largely based on what they call latches, or that it's too late to sue. The sad thing is that the Oneidas and other Iroquois people were only able to sue in federal courts for land only in 1974. So, and the, the Oneidas and Cayugas filed their claims as early as the 1970s, the Senecas in the 1980s, for example. And so the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, said, well, it's too late. You can't sue now. It's too late. You know, It's called the Doctrine of Latches. The, and so they, they're caught in a catch-22. They couldn't sue earlier than 1974 until a decision of the Supreme Court allowed them to sue in federal courts for land. And by the time they got up to a decision of the Supreme Court in 2005, 2006, in what's called the Sherrill case and in the Kiyuki case, the court said it's too late. So the status of Indian land claims in New York 
is basically gone for at least this generation until some other court and uh, some other um, loophole is found to sue in court. Okay. Uh, the okay. Oneida, but I should mention that the Senecas, uh, unlike the Oneidas, were to succeed in securing 51 acres of their land at what's called uh, the Oil Spring Reservation back in 2005. I was involved in that case. Okay. All right. Um, we we have about uh, 10 minutes left. So, um, and I have two two more questions uh, regarding the Iroquois. Um, and this is also confusing for me. Uh, again, if you can very briefly explain the citizenship history um, right. and you know from, from like, say, you know say their status as sovereign nations, you know, starting there, and then what's their citizenship status today? According to the 1924 Indian Citizenship Citizenship Act, all Native Americans born within the boundaries of what is now the United States, including Indian reservations, Native American territory, are citizens of the United States. Now, not all Native Americans accept U.S. citizenship, but they are guaranteed by federal law and by the federal courts as citizens. Some Iroquois see themselves as dual citizens, those in Oklahoma, those many of them in Wisconsin, for example, some in New York. Some see themselves as Haudenosaunee citizens, like the Anadakas, for example, and some of the traditional people among the Mohawks and other Iroquois uh, communities. Uh, the Onondagas see themselves as Haudenosaunee citizens and allies of the United States. See, uh, But uh, they are entitled to all of the rights and privileges of citizenship within the United States. See, the problem was that in, 19, in 1871, the United States ended treaty-making with Native people, arguing that how could they be, how can we make treaties with what we want to make into citizens? So they stopped making treaties. The last treaty was 1883 in terms of its ratification. So, there, so since that time, there, there was a movement right to 19, well, since that time, time in the 1870s and even a little earlier to 1924 there was a push to make American Indian citizens whether they wanted it or not and an interesting story is in 1947-48 President Truman went down to Florida and uh, visited the Seminoles and the Seminoles the chief at that time said to President Truman um we, we're still at war technically with you. We, are tech, we never we never signed an agreement to end our third Seminole War, so we're technically at war with you. So, in other words, this uh, this idea of sovereignty continued, at least in the, the Seminole mind, right to to the time of President Truman. But <laughs> that, so that that was an issue. But the. the the Uruguay, in order, you have to understand that the pride and the nationalism within the Six Nations is what largely made for their survival well into the 21st century. Their, their commitment to, to believe 
in what they believe, whether it's in their rituals or in their views about sovereignty. Their view, this is the most important thing I could say to you, they, they believe in what's called inherent sovereignty, inherent sovereignty, that Washington didn't give them sovereign, sovereignty. Washington or Albany or Madison or Oklahoma City, they didn't give, that wasn't given to them by any non-Indian authority, but it was given to them by the Creator. Okay, that is, that is a universal view by Native people, at least among the Haudenosaunee, this idea of what we call inherent sovereignty. That's the most important thing I can tell you because it is that belief that defines them as sovereign nations. Uh, despite federal laws that restrict them, despite the Supreme Court that says they're domestic dependent nations, in their belief, the past is a present reality. And in their past, they hold, they hold on to this view of inherent sovereignty. Okay. All right. And then my my last question. For those of us who are researching the Six Nations, uh, do you have any tips uh, that you can provide? Uh, if, are there certain records uh, we should be looking for? I have a, I have a, a, actually several tips. One of them is to visit Native American communities and their museums and meet the people themselves. Okay. Uh, in New York, there are, there's the Seneca Iroquois Museum, Iroquois National Museum. Uh, there is the um, museum. Uh, there's a little um, um, museum at uh, Oneida. There is the Akwesasne Museum at, uh, the, at the Akwesasne Mohawk Museum, which is a wonderful museum, by the way. Uh, you should visit Native American communities and their museums, meet the people. Secondly, don't overly depend on federal state documents, that you have to understand the way people think and that what is presented in federal state documents present a different picture often than what is in Native people's beliefs. Three, don't go where you're not invited. Um, that's a very important. Go where you're invited. Uh, go where you're, you're wanted and learn to listen and observe. I think that's quite important. Um, when I first started this research, I, I took four Seneca women to Mohunk for breakfast, and I began to sort of talk a lot and to just try to entertain these women in terms of uh, they were visitors of mine. Uh, at the end of the breakfast, four women, one of the women who I know to, the, to this day, her name is Norma Kennedy, who a very prominent Seneca woman, said to me, you know, Larry, you should learn something about us. And I said, well, what, Ms. Kennedy? I said, uh, she said, well, you have to learn how to listen. You, you don't have to entertain us. You have to learn what we're saying. Um, so another point, too, is that many Native American communities maintain valuable research facilities. You should understand that. Um, they have historical societies, too. They have heritage centers. They have libraries, museums. Uh, as I mentioned, the Aqua Sasne Mohawk Cultural Center upstairs is the library, the Mohawk Library, the Seneca Iroquois National Museum. The Seneca Nation has its own archives. 
uh, its own as two libraries, the Six Nations Woodland Center. Uh, in recent years, the Tonawanda Senecas have founded a historical society. Uh, most impressively to me, the Wisconsin Oneidas have done so much in preserving their history. They not only have a cultural heritage department, but they have an Oneida, a Wisconsin Oneida Indian Historical Society. They collected 3,000 pages of uh, records under the WPA that is available, both there and it's also available at the University of Wisconsin um, and the, uh, excuse me, the, the, uh, the Wisconsin Historical Society. Uh, 3,000 pages of interviews of Oneidas by Oneidas that document the history of the Oneidas in Wisconsin. It's incredible. Um, historians, another, another point I'd like to bring out, historians cannot be impatient in the quest for quick publication or in the nervousness to secure tenure. It takes a while to learn. It took me 10 years to start writing. You know, you just have to be patient and collect and reflect on things before you do. Uh, it's see what unfortunately graduate schools in this country sort of peg those who are interested in Native American history to just colonial history, as if Native American history doesn't exist after 1800. Much of my research has been post 1800. Um, but lastly, and my my advice, most maybe most importantly, is that researchers must be culturally sensitive. They must be respectful of Indian cultural and religious traditions, however different they are. They should quickly acquaint themselves to realities of Indian politics and try not to become involved or tied to any one group. In other words, you can't. You, although you have, you might feel as if you you uh, want to take a position with uh, and favor one position you, you can't do that you have to be you have to be open minded um, they have a responsibility as they say to listen and to speak with different members of communities with different points of view and not neglect working with the entire community there's a tendency to only look to one family or two families. That's not good. Um, a necessary requirement for historical research is impartiality as much as possible, something not taught in graduate schools or in highly volatile and fractionated world of history departments throughout the country. And I really mean that. You know, I, I think that that, that matters. Um, you know, among the Senecas, the reason why I'm pretty much accepted among the Senecas, for example, in my work over the last 40 years is, you know, I talk to members of the Presbyterian Church, the Longhouse, the Mormons, you know, um, whoever, uh, whatever, um, the Episcopal members, of the, whatever. And I don't necessarily see one as, quote, better than the other, you know. Um, I'm open-minded when it comes to that. And um, I think I think helping, I think my, I benefited by growing up in Brooklyn, too. I think that has something to say because I was exposed to different 
communities, ethnic groups and racial groups. And I think that helped to understand uh, diversity. And uh, I think that did. I, I must say that, you know, I think that that really did help me in understanding Native people. I mean, you know, and like, you know, a lot of times Haudenosaunee people ask me about me. You know, well, what, what about you? You you ask questions. Well, what about so? I, you have to spend the time and talk. They're human beings. They're human beings with um, their own views of of life and history and the like. And um, I think that's why I emphasized previously to you that that time should not be necessarily a factor. That you know you need to. Learn how, as they say in Brooklyn, you have to learn how to schmooze. I think, <laughs> I think that. See, that's the. I think that's the. I think this this part of what I'm saying today is the most important thing I, I could do. I, I may have not been able to explain the 1838 treaty so well. I'll be honest with you. It's because of the complications relating to it, which is true. But I think I. I think. See, I, I think that my experience in the field tells me and has taught me certain things and and I think I think that may be the most important lesson I can give. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for your recommendations. Um so uh, as we uh, end our show, how can we order the book? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I uh, the uh, the distributors of my uh, of all my Syracuse University Press books are Longleaf Books. Longleaf Books. Telephone number one eight hundred eight four eight six two two four. www.longleafservice.org. dot um, Other books uh, could be ordered through Amazon. Two of my books would be more oriented to a general reader, to just learning the basics of Native Americans in New York. Which two Seven books generations, are those? Seven Generations of Iroquois Leadership, The Six Nations Since 1800, which was published by Syracuse University in 2008. And the other book is uh, that if you could get a hold of it, and it's, I think it's still, some of it, I think it's still in print, Tribes and Tribulations, Tribes and Tribulations, uh, Tribes and Tribulations, which is published by, um, it's published by the University of New Mexico Press in 1995, but it's still, it's, uh, to me, that would be a good place to start because it really, talks about not just the Iroquois, but Native Americans as a whole, including issues that we talked about today, like citizenship, for example. Okay. And, All right. Uh, and it, it, before I ask uh, my last question about your own ancestry, is there anything else uh, you would like to add about our, our topic today in closing? Well, you see, the, yeah, the one other thing that you you mentioned to me and prior to it um, I've been a historian for nearly half a century, and I'm very much aware of the horrible policies imposed by federal and state government. But what I try to do in the last 10 years more than anything else is write positive stories of Native Americans uh, 
and what they have and how they have managed to make a difference not only in their communities but in the United States as a whole. That part of history has to be taught more in schools. And that was that was the advice given to me by an uh Anishinaabe Ojibwe chief uh, chief Tushkini back in the 1990s. He said what we need is more biography because we had heroes too and they weren't just warriors. And I think that was one of the better pieces of advice I I was given. Okay. All right. Thank you. So uh, what is your own ancestry? Well, my um, uh, my grandfather came from um, southern Poland. He's a Jew from southern Poland uh, in uh, 1907. Uh, with a singer sewing machine on the back, in, on his back, right? And my paternal grandfather was also uh, from Poland, pretty much that same area, who was a baker. His name was Morris Hauptman, okay? And um, so so basically we're talking about the Jewish shadows, you know, the, the old old Jewish communities of Eastern Europe, basically. Okay, and, and the, they landed in uh, New York City? And they landed, you know, it, it actually depended on the ship they took, right, from Hamburg, right? They took a ship from Hamburg, right? So they ended up in, in New York. That's how that's basically the, uh, basically about the same time, pretty much the same time. And um, and they settled on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and uh, and then uh, they moved, uh, the they made a little bit of money, and they went to the Bronx. And from the Bronx, they moved to Brooklyn. So they were moving up in the world. It's, so, it's called social okay. mobility. <laughs> and, uh, okay. And were and they, they both were married mother, at the time? What's that? Were they both married at the time that they immigrated, or did they meet their brides uh, here? Uh, no, they were, both, they, they were both married in Europe. And, okay. Yeah. And then um, my father... Uh, and his five sisters, uh, basically there were five sisters. My father was the first to go to college and uh, the first probably in my family to get out of New York City, going to Cornell on a region scholarship in 1926, ending up in medical school in 1930. Okay, okay. And do you uh, work on your own genealogy? Not not so much. I really haven't. Um, I haven't. I, except to trace it back to Morris Hauptman, right? My um, my um, my wife's family is intriguing to me. Um, my wife's family because uh, my wife has a picture of her grandmother's great grandmother from the 1880s, who was over 100 years old at the time. Uh, born in Pinsk in Belarus. Was that fascinating? Picking up that photo sort of fascinated me about that. And then my my wife's father's family, my wife's father's family, are descendants of uh, Scottish Jews. Um, and uh, the, there was a famous writer and painter by the name of Isaac Rosenberg. Who was who was a, a, a contemporary of Modigliani and uh, and Chagall, 
and who it was very, the three books, three major books on him, who was uh, killed in Flanders during World War One. He was part of. He's his name is in Westminster Abbey. So that that sort of my daughter was very interested in his life, of uh, but because she was because of his art background and his literary background alike. But yeah, he was a friend of Sassoon and uh, Brooke Rupert Brooke. So uh, that that intrigued me a lot, you know, to to know that somehow we're connected, or at least my wife's connected back to. Westminster Abbey. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, Larry, thank you so much uh, for sharing your expertise with us today. It's It's been fascinating, and uh, as I said, I, I found the book uh, also fascinating and very enjoyable, uh, very readable in terms of, of history. Um, I'm a historian, and I know there are some some historians' books are very challenging to read, but this one was 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 engaging and and wonderful so thank you for sharing uh the iroquois confederacy and uh chapman uh chapman scandal with us today i appreciate this call and um i look forward to seeing you again soon all right all right this is the forget me not hour your ancestors want their stories to be told have a good day <laughs>